Welcome, Pioneers, to episode 22 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? Okay, today we're going to pick up where we left off last episode. I started to bring up Beauty and the Beast. And in the last episode, what I talked about was how you can see people like Jordan Peterson and a lot of others uh, on the social media space will explain to you how um, women want a man like the Beast. Right. And this has become pretty stereotypical um, explanation of how you want a man who's capable of violence, but is tame and got himself put together and controlled. But there's more to that story. Uh, and we hinted at it last episode. Nobody really explains what Gaston is, the cost of being Belle, or what LeFou and the, the, tri the triplets, who I call the original Thotianas, what they all represent. So let me, um, trying to put this in kind of a sensible order, but I may jump around a little, so apologies if that happens. But Gaston is a perfect representation of today's masculinity hustler. So you go on TikTok or through the podcast circuit or whatever social media channel, and you've got all kinds of masculinity hustlers out there who are thumping their chests and declaring that, you know, that the typical shit of women need to be subservient. They have to follow a man's lead. And if you're a high value man, then you should be cheating on women and don't get married unless you've had sex with 500 women and on and on and on with this nonsense. And, um, you look at Gaston and you realize they're the same person because what is Gaston doing? He's walking through town. He's got his chest uh, pushed out, you know, and he's, he's declaring himself the most valuable man in town. He's got his little plate of simps following him. LeFou is like the perfect man crushing simp. Um, perfect representation of the people who love these masculinity hustlers on social media. And what Gaston, uh, when you first see him in the movie talking to Belle, He's taking, you know, he's making fun of her for reading books and he's asking her, why are you even reading? You're a woman. You don't need to read. And, um, it, that's again, perfect, perfectly analogous of how the masculinity hustlers are telling women, um, you don't need to educate yourself. It's pointless. Men don't find that attractive. And they're not entirely wrong that men don't find those traits attractive in women per se, but the extent to which they go to is just an extreme, uh, position. And you look at, um, Gaston. And it's the exact same thing. He, he wants Belle because nobody else can have her, right? She's the one thing in town he can't have, so he has to have it. He's got to conquer her. But he doesn't respect any of her personality traits. Like, he spends the whole movie trying to get her not to act like herself. So it's a really weird. You'd think it's weird that he even wants her because he doesn't. He doesn't. She's just the prettiest girl in town, so he has to have her. Uh, again, not unlike the masculinity hustlers who want a wife that's, you know, a perfect 10 in, in looks and doesn't care about literally anything else. Okay. So then take it a step further and you've got the, uh, the three triplets in the story, uh, the, the three Thotianas who are just falling over themselves for, uh, Gaston. They can't tell the difference between him and the beast, right? They, you know, the way Bell can, they can just see him. They think uh, he's got all the prestige. He's probably got money. He's, you know, so they want to, they're all fawning after him, but what does a marriage to Gaston look like? It looks like exactly what, a marriage to one of these modern day masculine masculinity hustlers looks like he's going to cheat on you. You know, it, he has no respect for you. So he's going to, you know, order you around and make demands of you. He's going to do what he wants. Um, wouldn't be a far stretch to say he's going to be abusive either verbally or physically. Uh, again, not a guarantee with all masculinity hustlers, but not uncommon either, at least not as uncommon as it should be. Uh, but more importantly, he's, he's going to be sleeping around. He's going to be cheating and the thought Tiana's don't care. 
because they're they're brain dead bimbos and they just they got the big guy in town that's all that matters and you're seeing that develop now where men are creating these harems of thoughtianas and mentally unstable women who are just completely incompetent in life and uh, uneducated low iq and it's a, it's actually a real hellscape to try to have a, a harem of of brain dead bimbos but um, that's what these masculinity hustlers are pushing so you just more and more as you dig into it you can see what's going on there and i just uh, i can't unsee it now anytime i see these masculinity hustlers on social media or on a podcast all i see is gaston thunking his chest and uh you know putting bell down even though while telling her that he should be submissive she should be submissive to him so that's uh what do you think does that make sense <laughs> yeah a lot to jump into there um certainly the oh man that when he said the hellscape of brain dead bimbos i i can't imagine being responsible for for not just one of those but several of those i mean what a nightmare <laughs> i would just get in the way of everything i try to do with my life um so uh yeah let me let me jump into one question so the first thing that jumped out at me is um so in real life how often does bell end up with gaston whether or not she realizes what she's done in Okay, in uh, the short term, quite often, as in like a 20-year-old Belle will meet a Gaston and get put through the ringer with him, get cheated on, get put down, whatever else, um, the typical dating pattern, but she wisens up to it. So it doesn't become habitual. What happens more often and what we're seeing now is that the Bells wind up alone. All right, we're seeing it a little bit with boomer women, right? They were the first the boomer generation was the first where females could really hold a job and be independent financially. So they're the first generation we're seeing who have opted to die alone than to be with a beta male, right? Because you've got all the LeFous running around. Uh, if you remember LeFous, the little fat guy who's simping after Gaston. Lots of LeFous running around in, in their 40s and 50s who are willing to take uh, any single woman that's available. But the Bell types have decided they'd rather die alone than be with these beta types. Um, or the Gastones, right? If they don't find their beast, they just die alone. And we're seeing that with the millennials now as they've got um, they've got the college education, they've got the higher paying jobs. Uh, in spite of all the, the crying about the glass ceiling and um, the, wage, uh, the wage gap, millennial women are out earning men. And when they out earn men, they don't date them. So what this, this translates in two different ways, right? Um, and, and you could stop me if, if you got a question in the way. I'm, I know I'm going on a tangent here. Um, this, this happens two ways now. You got masculinity hustlers that are telling women you shouldn't educate yourself because you educate yourself out of the dating pool. And there's women who are saying, so I should just be stupid so that I can find a husband. And it's like, no, understand the cost of educating yourself is that you will find more men less attractive. All right. If you are, if you have a PhD, you're not going to find a man with a high school education attractive. If you're making $200,000 a year as a lawyer or a doctor, you're not going to find a $50,000 a year, um, you know, marketer or IT guy, whatever, or, or tradesman even, you're not going to find them as attractive because you're making four times what they are. So it's not that you have to make yourself stupider. It's you have to understand what is the cost of being bell? What is the cost of all that reading and self-improvement you eliminate the abuse of men from your life. You learn how to identify them. You identify the weak men and you weed them out of the pool, but that leaves you with a very small pool of men who you feel are qualified to date you. And of course, you're still in competition with every other woman for those men. 
that's the cost. Okay. So um, if I heard you right, after Belle gets run over by Gaston, if she doesn't find her beast, she ends up alone. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, there's definitely an age limit to uh, finding your beast, right? And there's a lot of factors in that. You got some guys saying that it's because you lose your sexual market value. You know, you get physically less attractive as you age out. But it's and that, that's certainly a part of it. But there's also the fact that the older you get, whether you're a male or a female, the older you get and the more time you spend alone, the more set in your ways you get and the less you're able to compromise and work with somebody else and disrupt your life to fit somebody else into it. So you just become so set in your ways that you're unchangeable. And that's, I, I guess there's a little bit more time preference for men in that regard. Um, but in reality, once you get into your forties, if you've been single the whole time, your the likelihood that you're ever getting married is, is just dropped off to almost nothing because you're just totally fixated in your ways and you're, you're too stubborn to, to move on at that point. Yeah. Interesting. So, <clears throat> I mean, it seems like, the kind of takeaway is there uh, for the bells out there very critical that they don't get sidetracked by the Gastons or their chances of a happy ending get very slim. Yeah. You just don't have a lot of time and it's, um, and it's important for men too, but men have about an extra 10 years or so to, to get serious about a relationship. Women, because of their nature and also because of the need to ha have, have children early. Right. Um, Sorry, that's a whole separate tangent. So uh, I'll, I'll kind of put a pin in that for now. But you want to have your family earlier and have children earlier. So you got to get serious about finding a quality man uh, a lot sooner. And um, it's just the, the stakes are too high uh, to wait and the stakes are too high to make a bad choice, right? Uh, we've got a lot of problems with uh, the modern setup of marriage too. So mate selection is so crucial that you get it right. Because the cost of divorce is just so high, you can't um, you, you can't afford it. You got to make sure that the person you're picking is the right one. Uh, and it goes for men too, but for for different reasons. But you can't afford poor mate selection. A woman cannot afford a Gaston or a Lefou any more than a man can afford the Thoughtianas. So is it uh, is it that Gaston costs her a lot of time, like really valuable time, or is it something that Gaston does that makes it so she can never be happy with anything except a beast? Uh, he costs her time, right? Because the longer she stays with him, the worse it's going to be for her. It's going to be uh, emotionally abusive at the very least. Uh, it's going to be very limiting. She's never going to feel like she's reached her full potential because she's living with a man who's just you know, shoving her into a box that she doesn't fit in. Um, Again, if there's plenty of women who are content to not have a college degree, never work a job and just be a kept woman, uh, knowing that their husband's going to cheat on them, they, they don't care because there are women who simply see a man as a means of paying bills and uh, donating semen so that they can have children, right? So that that's it. That's the only purpose of a man in their eyes. Much like there's, you look at these masculinity hustlers uh, today, and for them, the only purpose of a woman is cooking, cleaning, and providing children. That's it. They have no other purpose to them other than to be basically a, a second mommy that they can have sex with and provide them children. Um, so those types of people deserve each other. But for the Bells who don't want to be a mommy to their husband, who actually want to be in a functional marriage and who want to be respected and who want to have the opportunity to raise a family down the road, start her own business or raise her family according to her values and just be educated in herself 
whether it involves a career and money making money or not. But a woman who wants to be free to do that without ridicule and abuse for her husband, she can't waste the time with Gaston. He might be hot, he might have money, but he's not going to give you that emotional fulfillment that you're looking for. You have to find a beast who will accept you for the way you are and prop you up in the same manner that she's willing to prop him up and encourage his career, his endeavors, and his way of life. You know, it's that that symbiosis that has become more fantasy than reality in real life. Uh, but the more time you waste with those types, the Gaston types, um, you know, you just run out of time and your beasts become, uh, you know, they, they get picked up by other women. And what happens is Belle turns into the, the boomer Karens that we're seeing now. Stubborn, bitter, man-hating. Uh, it just, you don't see a 60-year-old Belle still looking for a 60-year-old beast. That doesn't, they, they age out of it and become Karenized. Yeesh. <laughs> pretty harsh um so what what stopped women in the old days from from ending up on the wrong side of that dynamic uh it didn't you had arranged marriages you know the if you were lucky both for men and women right uh because arranged marriages uh one they were kind of necessary just to stop inbreeding right before people were able to travel from town to town i'm talking hundreds of years ago you know just to stop inbreeding you needed an arranged marriage just to keep keep from having goony goo goo children but a good, even into the early 1900s or mid 1900s, uh, I forget the term they use for the guys who would arrange marriage, but uh, every culture had a different term for it. But basically the guy who would do that, he'd sit down and look at the family. He'd look at the family's history. The, he'd be looking at the potential wife, her parents, the, the environment she was raised in. He'd look at the potential husband, his parents, the environment was raised in, and he'd match them up based off of ethics, personality, and likeness. And it worked. It worked, you know, TV, movies, Hollywood, feminism would have you believe that women were just being sold off as chattel and um, it was just this horrible form of oppression. That's not how it worked. Uh, it was a real skill to be a matchmaker in that regards. And they would set up the arranged marriages uh, as best they could with the information they had. And that, you know, if you had a good guy doing the arranged marriage, that was actually your best filter to avoid that situation. Um, you know, and out, outside of that, you've really got to dig into individual cultures after that, because, um, you know, how many women could be literate, you know, 500 years ago, about as many men as could be literate, really, you know, they're just, people weren't literate, they weren't reading, it took a long time before that became a common thing. Uh, so to, to really answer your question, you got to pick a time, a country, and, you know, you're going to get wildly different answers. But I, I guess the, the very short answer is there was no opportunity to filter for it. You just got what you got and you, you made do. So basically these days, there's no support mechanism that will help women make you know better decisions there. It's that it's entirely on her. She's got to, she's got to figure this out for herself and, and drive her life in the right direction. Yeah. And it's a constant uh, battle because uh, but maybe battle is not the right word, but, um, you talk to any woman, married or single, in her 30s, and you ask her about the men she dated in her 20s, and nearly every one of them, other than women who are still in that, you know, marrying the first man they slept with, you know, very fundamentalist Christian women, um, which there's fewer and fewer of, but um, your, your average American woman will have had a few partners before she gets married. She's getting married in her late 20s, early 30s, and maybe she's dated three or four guys, Um there's at least one of those guys that totally played her and you know, she would, you know, and she's, she'll tell you, I did everything I was supposed to do. I didn't sleep with him for like four months. 
I uh, made sure we were dating. Uh, he was calling me his girlfriend, all these things. And then she finds out that, no, nah, she was actually one of three other women. And he never told his friends about her. And even though she waited so many months, he, she still got played. Um, and it's because the pickup artist community, the, the masculine hustler community, they are constantly adapting strategies because women pick up on the pickup lines. So they make new ones. They pick, they'll, they get wise to whatever the current scam is. So these guys are constantly shifting because, um, there's, again, there's a, this isn't for all pickup artist types. You can definitely break them down into several subcategories, but at its core, chasing women in bars, seducing women, there's a type of exciting predatory nature to it. And I don't mean predatory in sexual predator, negative way. I just mean, it's a thrill of a hunt, thrill of the chase. You know, any guy who's ever picked up a woman in a bar, whether for a one night stand or even just gotten her phone number, right? It's a very exciting process of you're flirting with her, you're teasing her, you're throwing these different lines out, seeing how she responds. And when it's working, it's very exciting. Well, there are men who will do this for what they won't, you know, once they've got their, their eyes set on a woman, they're not going to let her uh, walk away, basically. They're going to keep doing it until they win. They see it as a challenge and a victory. And until, even if, if it takes months to get her into bed, months, they'll, they'll put that time in because it's not about quantity of woman. It's about not losing any given uh, pursuit, right? And I, I can't ascribe a percentage. This could be 5% of men. It could be, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. But the, the, these men exist. And you, you talk to a woman, like I said, in, in her 30s, she'll have dated at least one of these men. It's just so common that women have met at least one guy like this and dated and slept with and got played. And that, of course, leaves them bitter and jaded and untrusting. And any man who's you know, dated a woman in her 30s, he has to overcome so many of these hurdles because other men have burned her. So now you've got to, if you're the nice guy, you're either seen as manipulative or you're seen as weak. So you still have to be a bit of a beast and a bit of a predator, but you, you've got to get her to loosen up and trust you. And it's like, it's just this whole horrible game that we're playing because, um, well, because of so many reasons, hookup culture, social media, and other, like there's, there's so many factors going into it that I, I couldn't explain in the next five hours, but basically you're, you're overcoming these hurdles. And that's the hardest thing for, for any woman who wants to be a bell is learning to identify Gaston without becoming a bitter, uh, angry person and still being able to trust. Uh, so I've got a, a personal story uh, that I think might, might be relevant here. Um, and uh, it's sort of comical, sort of not, but, <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll try to tell it without doxing myself. But uh, in college, there was a guy on my team, let's call him Big Jim. And uh, he was extremely well endowed, like on a scale I didn't know was possible. Uh, I wouldn't say he was attractive or some kind of badass, uh, just very, very well endowed. Uh, and he cleaned house on a scale I'd never even heard of before, except maybe like Wilt Chamberlain or Arnold or something. Like there were very few girls who could resist that combination of him being an athlete and being extremely well endowed. So the basic cycle played out like this. Uh, girl hears about Big Jim's gift. Uh, her immediate reaction is utter shock. And then a couple sentences later, she kind of does this thing where she feigns disgust, even though uh, you know everybody can see through her reaction is like genuine interest and excitement. Um, and then especially because she learns or hears about how many other girls he slept with, she's like, oh, that's so gross. And this is something like, how can that even feel good? But then you can see her curiosity gets spinning, right? And then over the next couple of weeks, she finds every way to be around him at parties, et cetera, sleeps with him, and then he moves on. Is, is that 
Is he is Big Jim a Gaston? Absolutely. Only it's a Gaston in some regard being uh, seduced by Thotianus. And this is, um, again, like you got to be part narcissist as a female to look at a guy who slept with a hundred women and say, I'm going to sleep with him and he's going to actually stay with me. I'll be the last woman he sleeps with. Like you've got to have a special level of narcissism and delusionalism to, to miss that. Um, and there, there is an element too of other types of women who just, they want to sleep around too, because they've been told, um, you know, it's been downloaded into their little NPC brain that they're it's empowering. So they've got to sleep with a guy who's got a massive schlong. They've got to sleep with a guy who's, you know, seven foot tall. They've got this like checklist of men they need to sleep with the same way that, um, you know, certain pickup artist types are like, well, I got to sleep with a Swedish woman. I got to sleep with an African woman. I got to sleep with an English. Like, they just have this checklist of women they have to sleep with. So there are, there, there's definitely an element of that, but a lot of it is just this, like, um, let, let me phrase it another way. There's, uh, you, you see this happening now on a lot of these podcasts. Women will say, if a man I meet and want to date is not sleeping with other women, then, well, there must be something wrong with him. Well, that is a um, perversion and an extreme of if I'm dating a man and no other woman finds him attractive, there's something wrong with that man, right? A woman wants a man to be loyal because, again, if, if your man is, uh, from the woman's perspective, if a man's sleeping around, that's going to be other women taking resources from you and your babies, right? At a biological level, you don't want to harem because that's resources being taken from you and your children. So, but you want a man who is desirable by other women because it's a it's social proof that he's a high value man. Well, if you just take that to the next extreme, the man's not valuable unless he's banging four other women. That's how I know he's valuable, right? That's what happens. That's the difference between a Thotiana and a bell. A bell would say, yeah, other women want him, but he's loyal to me. And that's perfect for me because I get all the resources. I get the man to myself. It's, it's all wind. It's all upside. But the Thotiana goes, well, I can't trust him if he's not banging other women. So now she becomes part of a harem. And as we've discussed, a harem only involves low quality bimbos who are going to, to bankrupt you, uh, both emotionally and financially. Like you, you cannot afford to be around stupid women any more than a woman can marry a stupid man. Um, but yeah, I think I kind of went to three different tangents on your answer there. So uh, I don't know if that helped or not. Yeah, so he's, uh, it sounds like he's definitely a Gaston, um, but what, what was surprising to me, um, and, you know, there, there are a handful of experiences um, in my life that really like, changed or turned upside down everything that I thought I believed. This was one of them. This was definitely a top three for me, because the thing that was really shocking was how he turned girls into Tatiana's. Um, the range of girls who fell into that trap was utterly shocking. Um, so there were basically two kinds of girls who didn't end up there. One was a girl who already had a boyfriend on the team. And she, one, saw that cycle with Big Jim play out, you know, with multiple girls. And she's like, oh, I'm not going to fall for that. And two, she wouldn't want to sacrifice her status as an athlete's girlfriend for a chance at Big Jim. And then the other set of girls would be the super religious or, or really, really shy girls who just found him, found him immediately repulsive. That was it. The the number of quote unquote nice girls, decent girls, very marriageable girls that fell for it was utterly mind blowing. Yeah, well, there's a there's a definite hive mind effect for women and men, but it, it, I'm going to focus on women at the moment because the, the the male hive mind is a lot different than the female hive mind. But there's a we, I, we talked about this a few episodes ago where you've got like maybe one third of women 
who can look at a situation, assess the facts and say, I agree, I disagree, this is right, this is wrong. Then you've got the other two thirds who see a situation and they look left, they look right, and they say, well, the other women are doing it, that's the right answer. So I'm gonna do what the other women do. And that's how you get to the, the current situation where you have women who are like, well, if a man's not sleeping with other women, then I, I shouldn't sleep with him either because that's what the women left and right of her are doing. Uh, they don't have, they're not running anything through a thought filter or a logic filter. They're just looking and seeing well, what's the rest of the group doing. That's what I'm supposed to do. And it's, it is at least two thirds of women who fall into that category, maybe three quarters. Like it is, I, I used to think it was like maybe half, but looking around more and more, I'm like, oh, it, it's so many of them. Um, and you can see this uh, from social media trends and other, if the dating trends, just everything that's going on. I mean, why do you think a mother would take her child to a trans event and let uh, grown men and pedophiles rub up against their children and do these these drag shows and, and strip shows and shit? Why do you think women are castrating their children, be, you know, calling it trans? It's because they look left and right and the rest of the hive tells them that's the right answer. Whereas you've got this small percentage of women, 25, maybe 35% who are looking at it going, you people out of your fucking minds. Those are the bells. Those are the women who could look at it and say, no, that's wrong. In the dating aspect, those are the same women who would sooner die alone than be with Gaston or LeFou. So um, uh, I should mention, that was funny there, uh, you had a good uh, little plan words there, a thought filter. Uh, we should definitely tweet that, um, <laughs> like T-H-O-T. Um, so I, I should mention that this was long before hookup culture had hit the extremes that it's currently in. Um, so this dude had slept, Big Jim had slept with more women than probably everybody else on the team put together. And these were steadily athletes, like they were spoiled for choice. And he was still that, like that many dudes put together, like he just cleaned house. Um, so that sometimes I think about, uh, when I think about that guy, I go, gosh, what happened to the, you know, the hundreds of girls who slept with him? Like if they get married, do they spend the rest of their lives convincing themselves they're happy with their current guy? Can their current guy tell? Like, is that a functional relationship or are they ruined? In a lot of cases, it's going to be ruined. It, it depends on a couple things, right? Because just because a guy sleeps with hundreds of women doesn't mean he satisfies hundreds of women. It could be that, you know, Big Jim has a giant schlong and is a Minuteman, right? So maybe he just stretched them out, hurt them, and left them sexually unsatisfied. In which case, their current husband, as long as he can give her an orgasm, he's good to go. Uh, but if he's as good a lover as he is uh, well endowed, yeah, those women are, are going, to, going to have a pale comparison, right? That's going to be um, very hard on the marriage. Uh, but something, something I'm thinking about too is with Big Jim sleeping with that many women, did he see women as anything other than an opportunity of a place to stick his dick? Did he see them as human beings or as just like next? Did he just view all women as next? Uh, definitely the latter. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons why when I hear these these masculinity hustlers telling you um, you should sleep with five hundred women before you or one hundred women or whatever before you uh, before you get married, like there is zero possibility of that marriage not ending in divorce. It's guaranteed because you can't sleep with that many women and then see them as human beings. And if you don't see your wife as a human being, how can you possibly have a lasting marriage? Like. Look, I understand that the extreme end of that is is beta sims will fall in love with a woman who just absolutely ruins them. But that doesn't mean that you don't get married with love. You don't love your wife. Like, it doesn't mean that you set up a marriage where it's strictly a, um, 
contractual agreement for her to have kids and, and you to provide money. Like, I don't see how you can, unless you're a complete sociopath, I don't see how any non-sociopath engages in a marriage where he does not love his wife and his wife does not love him. Um, it's just going to be absolute misery and a costly divorce in any other, you know, if, if it's not. Yeah, great point. So uh, just made me think of uh, Bowtie Broke had this great take on this that went viral. Uh, basically, it was if you're a man and you're sowing your wild oats, you don't get it out of your system, you get it into your system. Uh, and I could, what I could see with uh, Big Jim, or at least happening to Big Jim, is in the end, the only girl he wants or can put up with is a Tatiana. And then, of course, he just cheats on her. Yeah. And the Tatianas are okay with that as long as he's, you know, laying the pipe and paying the bills. As long as she's getting hers, she doesn't care. And, and you'll see this, uh, a bunch of these women, they'll ask him, it's like, well, if, if, you're, if you're with a man who's making 500000 a year and he's paying all your bills and you have unlimited, uh, you know, credit cards, you can go just spend all the time and whatever, you're a kept woman. Do you care if he sleeps on you, uh, sleeps around on you? And they're like, eh, not really. Okay, well, you know, that works out um, for those types of people. But in general, uh, it doesn't work for, for normal people. But anyways, um, bottom line on all that is there's a cost to being Belle and women have to understand that. You know, you you elevate yourself out of the realm of the Gastones and the LeFous, but it, it's a, there's a price because there's a lot of Gastones and a lot of LeFous out there. So, you know, those aren't the men you want to be with, but you're also going to have a harder time finding a beast. So that, that's just kind of... Um, that's kind of my my summary on that. Uh, although I do want to throw one additional shout out. Bell's father is the original autistic engineer. Vaguely aware that women exist in the form of his daughter, but otherwise all he wants to do is build trinkets and show them off at the fair. You know, has nothing to do with the dating world. I just thought they really nailed the autistic engineer perfectly. And with that, I think unless you have any other thoughts or questions, we can switch over to our next topic. Um, you got anything else? No, I mean, I think it's just kind of a sobering takeaway that uh, now for women, they if they fall into the Gaston trap, it, it gets pretty slim for them pretty fast. So really critical to get, to get things right really early and, and message to the fathers. Obviously, a lot of people are figuring this out. You got to be you got to be on top of this dynamic or it could really screw things up for your life. Yeah. And I wish I had some very specific advice I could give, but I don't. I've I've been out of the dating world for like 15 years now. I wouldn't even recognize the landscape. So uh, for as much as everything I just said could be considered dating advice, it's it's not. It's just analogies from a story. But you, you use it to your advantage as best you can. Um, you know, again, for a father, tell your daughter you love her every day and be respectful to her mother. Even if, even if her mother drives you insane, be respectful to her in front of the kids and deal with, you know, the marital insanity behind closed doors. The more your daughters see a respectful marriage and a, a loving relationship with her father, the less likely she is to fall for the Gastone types. Uh, it's not foolproof, but it definitely increases the odds. Okay, so with that, uh, I want to jump to the next thought we had. You and I have kind of exchanged some, some texts. Uh, sorry. Thought, not as in Thoughtianas, but actual thoughts in the head. Um, some thoughts, some text messages we've been sending back and forth the last couple of days about UBI, you know, universal basic income and our fake economy. And I just started wondering, is UBI already here? Like, we look at UBI as the government sends everybody a check 
every week or every month just for being alive. That's how it's, it's spouted. But look back at COVID, look at the lockdowns, look at post-lockdown COVID. How many jobs in this economy are fake? I mean, Elon Musk fired, what, 75, 80% of the people who worked at Twitter, I mean, thousands of Twitter employees, and nothing changed. It ultimately got better. Like there was, there's what, seven or 8,000 people, or I'm sorry, I forget what the exact, it was several thousand. It might've been like 5,000. I don't remember the exact number, but thousands of people were just dead weight at Twitter. That was universal basic income. You know, Google, Amazon, uh, all the tech companies, they're laying off people in the thousands right now. And those jobs have no meaning. They're, the reason they're laying them off is because they're completely unproductive and they're a drag. So those jobs could be considered UBI as well. Like we have a corporate UBI now where they just hire useless people from made up jobs and they don't do anything productive. So how much of our economy really is fake and how much is UBI already here just under a different name? Great observation. I mean, I would actually say what we have is worse than UBI. Uh, I'd way rather have most of these fake employees sitting at home watching Netflix. Um, then they wouldn't be in my way, wasting my time competing with productive people for jobs. I wouldn't have to weed them out as we're looking for talent. Um, they're basically just a ton of noise drowning out the signal. Uh, and then also creates a tremendous amount of inertia that, that resists us improving the system because all these people have, quote unquote, a job that provides for their standard of living. And so we can't, we can't get rid of their zombie company because now what are they going to do? Right. So I would way rather have these people on UBI. Let's call a spade a spade. And I think it'd be better for them and better for us. Let's just do it. You know, I just had a, a thought. So go with me as I, as I flesh this out. When you take a company like Twitter, it just fired three quarters of the people that work there. What if all corporations and businesses, I don't know, uh, of 50 employees or more, or just all, you know, all business, right? Whether you're a one-man operation all the way up to multi-thousands of people. What if there was a business tax that we just called the UBI tax? And it was that was what funded paying the useless people not to show up to work. Would it be cheaper for a company to pay people not to show up versus having these people in there and, and affecting their bottom line and gumming up the works? Now, in a very literal sense, you could say that, no, this will just cost money. But really think about for a second, how, what is the long-term cost of these kittles in your company ruining everything they touch, costing you customers, gumming up the works? It's not just their payroll, but how much opportunity cost do they make in a company? How much you know, revenue are they, they preventing you from acquiring? Whereas if you just paid them to not show up, it would do more than having them present. Uh, man, in my personal experience, um, paying a UBI tax, paying these people not to show up would be a value add to society. <laughs> Straight up. It would, it would definitely, definitely pay for itself. Um, the key would be, uh, you'd have to create some sort of serious stigma for the UBI crowd so that it didn't attract a whole bunch of people who would otherwise be productive. Um, but yeah, absolutely. This is this would be an improvement in my mind. Well, so you would have something like, and this is just me throwing the, the, the bad version out, but people on UBI wouldn't be allowed to vote, right? So like, if you, if you remember the book, Starship Troopers, in order to uh, vote or hold office, you had to serve in the military. And then after you served in the military, you could vote and hold office. Something like that, where only people with a real job or a real business can vote. Anybody on UBI is not allowed to vote. So that would be like the first layer. Uh, the second layer would be something like 
you know, um, you would have an actual minimum wage after that. And the minimum wage would be double UBI. So if you chose to go be productive, you're guaranteed to make double what you could make on UBI. And, you know, of course you would actually have to be competent. And if you get fired, you, you get fired enough times, you're actually barred from, from employment because you've just been proven that you're too incompetent to be in the field. So you're, you're mandated to UBI. Like, again, I'm just, just throwing shit at the wall because it's just going through my head now, but I can imagine a variation of this that would work. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, um, just thinking about that first point, uh, if you're on UBI, you can't vote. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not just for the, um, um, not just for the incentives of the system, but for the sustainability of the system, really important that people on UBI can't vote or they'll just vote themselves into enormous wealth. Uh, kind of like what we have right now. <laughs> I, um, but let's talk more about that second point. Uh, I didn't really have a good chance to think about it much. Can you flesh it out more? Um, which second point, the, the minimum wage part or the, I threw a bunch of things out there, which part? Yeah. The minimum wage to? part. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be the point? So you have somebody who's potentially productive, but they can make, you know, three thousand dollars a month on UBI, or you're going to hire them at a three thousand dollar a month salary. You won't even bother. And even if you're offering them four thousand dollars a month, they're going to be putting in one hundred and sixty hours for a thousand dollars. So something like you would have to pay that your starting pay would have to be double UBI just to incentivize you to come in and work because now your your labor is producing money. And you have a significant amount more than if you did absolutely nothing. Uh, we already know now with the welfare system as it is, people will take uh, enough money to stay poor versus working to be barely not poor. You know, the jump from the welfare state to the workforce, you pretty much have to double the money before it's worth it for somebody to stop being poor for free. Yeah, it'd be a really interesting calculation to see whether we can, um, whether the UBI tax and what somebody would receive on that uh whether that standard of living would be enough to make them comfortably numb so that they're okay just staying there. Do you think that would be, you think the numbers would bear out? I, I would because, so the top tier people, the top tier productive people can't help but be productive. You can't pay them enough not to be. So the UBI is going to have no factor on them. That's the top, maybe 10% of people. You're, you're the people who are in the top 10 to 20% or 20 to 10%, you know, the next tier down, they could be tempted into laziness, but are moderately productive. They're still more productive than not. They're the people you need to keep off UBI and in the workforce. They're not the innovators, but they're the workhorses who take the burden off the innovators so that the innovators can continue to innovate, right? So they're the ones you need to motivate to come to work. Um, you know, the bottom, bottom tier of people, they'll always choose to be poor for free than to work at anything resembling uh, greatness. It's just that, that, little mid tier of people who could be tempted into laziness that you want to tempt out of it. So do you think that we actually have to make any changes or is this just already happening and it's, and it's inevitable and it's basically just a, a, a rock rolling downhill. I mean, putting aside our hypothetical scenarios to, to flesh it out in a perfect world, we're already there. You know, there's um, COVID showed that. And there's a lot of people who just never went back to work because they're able to, they, they figured out how to say poor for free. Uh, taking advantage of certain uh, federal benefits, social uh, state benefits and whatnot. Even though a lot of the COVID benefits have gone away, people haven't gone back to work. They've just managed to figure out how to how to stay poor and, and not work at all. And they're perfectly content with it. And then you've got uh, all this whole kid alt economy of people who are going to work 
they're not doing anything. It's a functional equivalent of playing with Legos all day. They're just not doing anything and they haven't been fired yet. So maybe the, the point is that um, to protect those people, you, you know, implement a UBI tax because they're already on UBI. They're already being paid to not produce. It's just that a corporation is paying them not to produce versus the government paying them not to produce. So really, it's just moving money from one column to the next. We just got to clean up the ledger so it's a little more honest. <laughs> I like that. So uh, if I'm kind of putting together your thoughts right, tell me, uh, so maybe the downturn, you know, the economic downturn will wash out the unproductives, kind of get like getting Elon'd like Twitter did, um, or at least high interest rates will do that, right? Wash out the zombie companies, wash out the, the unproductives. Um, and then the, the people who get washed out will demand more government handouts until we've completely made the transition. So if that's true, is inflation the UBI tax? It could be. It very well could be the UBI tax. Um, so I've got, I've got this conflicting thoughts right now, right? There's a little bit of a contradiction in, in some of my, my thought process here. So historically, I'm, I'm getting to the, the, how AI is going to replace all the jobs. But uh, before I get to that, like historically, every new innovation was going to put an end to the working man. You know, um, automobiles were going to put an end to horse-drawn wagons and everybody's going to be unemployed. And then the assembly line was so efficient, it was going to make people unemployed. And then uh, desktop computers were so efficient, it was going to put all these people out of work. And the internet was so capable. Like every innovation we've had created more jobs and it um, instead of putting people out of work. So now we're, we're talking AI is going to put everybody out of jobs. And you, historically, you'd look at that and say, nah, AI and automation is going to create more jobs somehow. But then right now we know so much of the economy and jobs are fake that the unemployment rate should probably be around 20%, if not, if not higher. If we were to get rid of all the completely useless, unproductive jobs, unemployment would be at least 20%, uh, possibly a lot higher. So historically, how many jobs existed that were completely pointless, that took a long time for the market to flesh out as useless dead-end jobs? Has, has it always been the case that the economy has had uh, just 20% of the people completely unproductive but still getting paid? In which case, you know, we, we haven't actually changed anything. Or have we actually caught up with the fact that um, advanced technology is putting people out of jobs and this time it's true that technology is going to make people unemployed. Um, I'm really not sure on that yet. It's it's definitely a contradictory ideas. So it seems to me that the the key point is at what point can we make the UBI crowd comfortably numb? Uh, and with the digital economy, I think that just got a lot cheaper. Just takes electricity and computing power and bug protein. They don't need to travel. They don't need to go to sports ball events to drive anywhere. Uh, they're they're um, economic footprint just got a lot smaller and a lot more sustainable on some sort of like tax base. So what you just said it there, sustainable, right? That's the only thing that's stopping full imp implementation of UBI. And that's because it's got to be sustainable. When you look at the math of like, well, we got to pay every person X amount of money. It's going to cost this many trillions of dollars. Where's that money coming from? The UBI argument starts to fall apart. But when you look at the economy as it is and the amount of nonsense jobs you realize the money's there it's just not funneled into a sustainable way so it doesn't take it doesn't cost a lot to keep these people comfortably numb you know you could easily set up a variation of section 8 housing 
for people to live for free. You, you just provide free internet. Like at a certain point, internet is just a, another public utility that um, has a baseline cost, but you could, you could give free internet to a lot of people and raise everybody else's internet rates by $2 a month and cover it. Like it's not hard to spread out, spread out the bandwidth uh, to non-payers. It's uh, I'm sure there's, there's, there's some details, literal details I'm missing, but overall you could, you could cover the costs in, in minor ways. The biggest thing that holds this country back is that we can't do anything without half the money going through a politician's pocket. That's why everything costs so much. The, the true cost is very cheap to keep these people, as you say, numb and quiet and digitally, you know, complacent. That's easy. That's cheap. It's implementing it in a way that politicians aren't siphoning 50 to 80% of the money through their pockets first. That's the real cost. You know, you look at the cost of, um, the stimulus checks and, and whatnot, the stimmies that they sent out 10% of the money made it to the people. 90% of the money was spread out over corporations that didn't need it to begin with. Um, when you're, when you're trying to fund a program with a 90% corruption uh, tax, it, it's astronomically expensive to do these things. So that's that's actually the major hurdle is government corruption is what's stopping implementation of UBI in an affordable manner. Interesting. So um, what's funny is we're actually describing Ready Player One, if you've seen that movie. Um, basically, people just live in the stacks and, and spend their entire lives digitally, you know, um, living a, a separate life uh, that's that's really easy to um, create because it's just it's just bits and digits um, I guess my question is is this a one-way street or do some of the scrappy poverty-laden kids decide they're going to change their lives and you know and the lives of their descendants and then emerge from that it's never a one-way street there's always no matter in any given time in history you can find somebody who is dirt poor who elevated themselves out of it. And in the last hundred years, you see that more and more because we have more opportunity now. Uh, you know, we, we have far closer equal opportunities now than at any time in history. So uh, the internet is filled with these, these millionaire gurus who started off in poverty. They came from a ghetto, they came from a trailer park, broken home, whatever. Uh, but they're always a one in a thousand, one in 10, one in a million people. Those people are just born differently. It's not going to matter how far down the UBI road we get, how digitally lobotomized we get. You're not going to stop those people from rising up. Like it's, it's genetic, but not inherited genetics, right? It's not like Elon Musk is going to co constantly give birth to more innovators like himself. It's certainly possible. There, there's a, there's a hereditary component to IQ, but the people with that drive to just go against the grain, to leave their environment and do their own thing, that just shows up no matter what. You can't breed that kind of compliance into human beings. So you go that ready player one route, the UBI route, you're not going to get generation after generation of just compliant drones. There's going to be people who walk out of that no matter what, no matter how, how hard you try to keep them in there. Cause it, they're just, they're in that top 10% mindset of innovator that just has to get out of that system. So they're, you're not going to stop those people from existing. They'll always be there. Uh, actually this, this brings up a really great point kind of along the lines of your tweet this week that, that triggered a bunch of trad cons essentially to the point that, we have way more freedom now, even if we're in the most oppressive law structure in history. What do you think? Yeah, that's one of those, like, God, it's such a cliche on Twitter when they say two things could be true at once, but but it's true. Like we're, we're seeing in real time some of the most oppressive and one-sided laws in history, right? Um, this past week, actually over the past month, you've had several self-defense cases in Texas, Arizona, a few other states where it was clearly self-defense where the person went to jail. 
for defending themselves, right? They, they killed an intruder, they killed somebody who was trying to kill them. And for the crime of not dying at the hand of a leftist or an illegal immigrant, they're going to jail. Uh, likewise, we just saw that um, mass shooting in a Christian school and everybody's uh, getting mad for dead naming and misgendering the shooter. Like, this is insane. Uh, so we're definitely seeing laws in a terrible way, uh, far more restrictive than they've been in the past. Yet at the same time, the opportunities for you to create wealth, circumvent those laws, and live a free and sovereign life are higher than at any time in history. Um, and it all comes down to technology and, and resources and available information. Um, you can use the internet to your advantage. You don't have to be digitally lobotomized slave to TikTok. You can use Twitter to your advantage and not just be uh, constantly arguing dumpster fire. Likewise, you can leverage work from home, get out of the cities, and provide yourself a, a self-reliant homestead and you don't have to like you learn as you go and just have youtube tell you how to do it like there's so much information out there to help you be a sovereign and free person while at the same time all the laws are stacked against you uh, so it's like yeah it's definitely competing ideas but i would say in my personal case i am freer and more sovereign than any man in my in my family history than any of my ancestors i have more opportunity and freedom than my father even though he's still alive my grandfather, my great grandfather, all of all the way back for you know as far back as I can trace my lineage, none of them are living the quality of life and free life that I am living. Yet none of them had to face the laws uh, that are stacked against me. So, yeah, I guess it's a matter of perspective and opportunity. You know, are, are you a victim or not? Yeah, I mean, we, you today, you get the opportunity to determine your freedom, but it comes with tremendous responsibility. You have to earn it every single day. Um, so before the internet, you were really stuck with the network and resources directly around you. So for me personally, I mean, it was incredibly hard to escape all the losers and even harder to recognize them as losers when that's all you know. But now when I'm on Twitter, I can immediately interact with all kinds of, of you know, high performers, people who actually want to live life and actually want to get a lot out of life. That, that, that drastically shortens the time it takes for me to to improve the quality of my life. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, you look back over the last 6,000 years, having a car and a smartphone puts you ahead of anybody in history. You can leave your area and you can access the entirety of human knowledge in the palm of your hand. So what is your excuse? Yeah, I'm still just kind of thinking about it. I, <laughs> I mean, I can see some people who, you know, let's say you grew up in just a really crappy family and they've pounded into your head that you will never go anywhere in life. But at some point, you were still going to be presented with the option of saying, hey, do I want to have a better life? And holy crap, especially living in the USA, you have a lot more control of that decision than someone in, let's say, uh, middle of nowhere India, right? Yeah, well, and again, think about, have you ever gone on Fiverr and solicited services from Fiverr? Some of the best things you can get are coming from either an Indian or Filipino man who has access to the internet, usually through an internet cafe, right? He doesn't own his own computer, but you got a guy with a bicycle or a scooter that can get himself to an internet cafe who's making, you know, anywhere from $4 an hour on up, which he's translating into generational wealth over in India. Like the, the explosion of um, quality of life and opportunity in India is massive. Every time they open up another in, uh, internet cafe, just quality of life goes up for the entire town. So think about that. Um, a car is nice, but access to internet might be the single greatest resource 
an opportunity to lead you to freedom in spite of all the laws uh, and all, all the efforts of the, um, you know, the, the Balthusians. I think I put it out the other day that government tyranny is no match for human ingenuity. And that's been proven again and again for thousands and thousands of years. And we're seeing it now on a daily basis. Human beings are just constantly circumventing government attempt at tyranny because they can't keep up with technology and ingenuity. You brought up that point about an internet cafe and it just really rang true to me. I coming from a guy who, you know, had to, there was a time in my life where an internet cafe made all the difference in the world to me. And I had to sit there and uh, I had to take a ticket um, that secured my place in line. And I was standing there with a whole bunch of homeless people. Uh, and I had to sit there and wait for them to get done surfing porn and their time to be up for me to hop on and, and apply for jobs. But just that access to the internet cafe made all the difference in my life. And I was able to pull myself, you know, up out of the gutter. Um, and uh, so I just had this realization that the internet cafe is the, you know, new version of a library, but sort of an infinite library. Uh, as long as there's enough computers, you don't have to sit there and wait for all these homeless people to just waste their lives away. Uh, but yeah, it's like, as long as you have an internet connection and computing resources, your life is completely up to you. And, you know, aside from just a really, really bad, bad stroke of luck, like you get hit by a car the next day. Yeah. And that's why I was saying earlier, having a car and a cell phone are the greatest things. Now, the cell phone, obviously, being just representation of mobile internet, right? You can, you can obviously do a lot better writing and work on a, a desktop or a laptop than you can a cell phone. That little nuance aside, the car is what allows you to leave the city, to leave the urban areas where the laws are stacked against you, where, you know, we just had a... Um, another tech founder get, get stabbed to death in uh, San Diego. You know, like you leave the city, you take the internet and the, all those resources with you. You know, you take your transportation, you leave, you go to a rural area where you're safe uh, from physical dangers, right? You still have government overreach, but you're at least safe from somebody stabbing you or uh, raping you on a train. And then you can actually sit down and start focusing on building yourself your own uh, Wi-Fi freedom and, and independent wealth and whatnot. You can, you can leave the cities. You don't have to be there. This idea that you have to stay in these horrible environments, you know, there's no reason for it. You don't, it's not like you have to walk the freedom. You can just get the hell out. You can drive yourself to safety and you take the entirety of the internet resources with you. There's no reason to be in cities anymore where the laws are the most oppressive and the danger, the physical danger is the highest. Yeah, so it really drives home the point, I think, that people are realizing how much control we have over our lives, at least the people who are exhibiting that control, uh, even if the government is doing everything it can to ruin our lives at the same time. Uh, but that combined with the fact that you know we happen to be living in a time when uh, we're getting to see firsthand that weak men cause hard times, <laughs> and in particular, weak men who inherited the greatest lead in the history of mankind and blew the whole thing in one lifetime. So it just, uh, it really drives home the point to me that I think in the future, in the near future, our current generation will come to view weak men with utter contempt and disgust. You, you specifically chose that path in life. Yeah. It's not going to be anymore. And like, like, just think back to when you were in grade school and high school, everybody would pick on the kid who was shorter wearing glasses and, and physically weaker. Cause he's, you know, he's growing uh, slower than everybody else in the class. Right. That's not going to be the type of weak men we pick on anymore. You're going to be able to identify truly weak men who have no backbone, who, who simp to authority, who just look at the teacher and say, teacher, tell me what to do. And that's going to be the kid who gets picked on next. That's going to be who gets bullied. And it's going to be because 
they're going to be able to look at their fathers. The, the kids are going to look at their father and see a man who actually stands on principle and competency and meritocracy. And they're going to carry that forward with them. And when they see the little snitches and tattletales and, and you know, the equivalent of uh, the COVID police as children, that's going to be who they start bullying. It's no longer going to be pick on the scrawny kid with glasses. It's going to be pick on the kid who's a snitch. Yeah, interesting. I just thinking offhand, can you think of an example where the government is telling you the truth or improving your quality of life? Not in any direct manner. Everything they've told you is eventually proven wrong. Uh, most recently, the vaccines, but you, I mean, you look at health, look at healthcare. They tell you that uh, diet, uh, red meat's bad for you, Carbo, you know, eating a, a grain-based diet is good for you, minimize fats, maximize sugar and carbs. Like, they tell you this crap. Um, it wasn't true. You know, they, they told you that canola oil was safer than, uh, than animal fat for cooking. They told you that um, margarine was safer than butter. They've taught, they're telling you to eat uh, less meat and more grain. All of that's false. All of that's patently false. Um, the same, you know, the same people are telling you that too much exercise might be bad for you. And, um, just, you can't, you can't pick a category that they were right on. Look at the environmental movement. I mean, they're still pushing solar and wind over nuclear when, um, there's zero evidence to support that. Now I'll, I'll add the caveat that innovation takes time and the, the innovations in solar that we will see in the next 10 to 20 years are going to make today look like, uh, nothing, but what they're pushing now with, with ruining agriculture land, because ag agriculture land somehow contributes to global warming. So bulldozing it and making it into a solar field fixes global warming. Like, no, that's absolute insanity. Um, you know, and, and it doesn't make anything better. It just costs money and ruins the environment and, and costs a lot of people their lives in the manufacturing process of the solar panels. So again, I can't think of a single category that the government has gotten right in the last hundred years. You know, it's just, they're always wrong. And anything they've done that makes your life better was purely by accident and a temporary effect at best. <laughs> yeah. I, just offhand, the only thing I can think of is maybe speed limits because people have a tendency to not recognize the physics of what it means if you're going 20 miles an hour faster, uh, you know, that it's exponential and, and the way cars deal with, uh, with impact at higher speeds drastically changes with just a little bit more speed. But anyway, you know, so maybe speed limits makes everything work, at least when you have to drive uh, as much as I hate driving. And I can't even believe that I said traffic seems to work. It doesn't. Uh, aside from that, um, if you're fitting in with the system, either your kids will be slaves or they'll be disgusted by you. Either way, your current choice is clear. Exit the system or you're ruining your kids' lives. Yeah, I definitely agree on the second point. I I'll give you a little pushback on the speed limit thing, because right now, Nobody, nobody obeys speed limits. Um, you know, you know, police aren't even going to pull you over if you're doing uh, less than 10 miles an hour over. And even at that, sometimes you get more leeway. Modern cars, see, capitalism and innovation made speed limits obsolete because it used to be 30, 40 years ago, driving 20 miles over to the speed limit was uh, going to be a, a natural selection event. Those people were going to weed themselves out and crash and die. Cars now, they handle better. They were more responsive. They've got all the sensors, anti-lock braking, and things like that. So innovation has made cars safer. And now you see, especially uh, women are getting especially bad. Um, I'm sure men are too, but I always see these women in minivans traveling 90 miles an hour down the freeway. And it's like, Jesus, don't you value your kid's life? But they're just going. They don't care. 
because the car will stop on a dime. And if they do get in a 90 mile an hour crash, they're still likely to survive between airbags and seatbelts. So I think innovation made speed, uh, speed limits obsolete. Yeah, so maybe maybe with new cars, we're much more survivable at high speed limits than we were before. Um, it's funny you mentioned that about the minivan. Just yesterday, I saw a minivan screaming through town, doing the stupidest things. I had a little, my kid is an honor student sticker on the back. And I was just like, oh my God, natural selection. And I feel terrible. I feel terrible saying that. Yeah, and the thing is, 30 years ago, that woman and kid would have been dead. Today, you know, she, she can get into a rollover and walk out of it. That's how safe the cars are. So, you know, maybe, yeah, I think it just comes back to if you innovate enough, you, you'll solve problems. Whereas when you try to legislate problems away through like speed limits, you don't actually solve the problem. Innovation solved the problem of people dying in car accidents. It, it, I, it's debatable whether there's less car accidents. I, I don't think there are. It's just that people can get into car accidents today that would have been guaranteed fatal yesterday and they can walk away from it. So you may never reduce the amount of actual accidents, maybe self-driving cars will take care of that. We'll see. But as far as, you know, people driving themselves, it's certainly more survivable now than it was in the past. So, you know, the less you get government in in government intervention in innovation, God, that's a horrible, horrible sentence to try to say. (laughs) It's a tongue twister. The less the government interferes in innovation, the better off you'll be. Yeah, sounds good to me. I, man, I, we dove through a lot of topics there. Kind of just have a lot spinning in my brain, but nothing smart to come out yet. Yeah, you know, there's other things I want to get into, but I don't think we have. I don't think I have the brain power today, so I'll just kind of throw out. Um, you know, there's definitely reasons to be optimistic. There's definitely reasons to be pessimistic. Um, I think I might write about that in the next few weeks in Substack for sure, and then we can either either we'll talk about it on the podcast, and then I'll write it, or I'll write it and we'll talk about it. But either way. There's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic right now. We covered some of the, we cover them every every episode. You don't have to look far for it. But and, and and I mean but it could be so much worse. If you doubt me, go read Michael Malice's The White Pill to understand that things can be so much worse and yet you can overcome it and life can get better. No matter how bad it gets, life can get better. And because of that, there's reason for optimism. And like like we just talked about with the freedom of opportunity through technology you can outsmart the tyrants you can get through this there is reason for optimism life is going to get better but it's not going to be a straight line you know look we're going to defeat the, the pedophiles we're going to defeat the the trans people that are castrating children we're going to defeat this hive mind but it's going to get worse before that happens it's definitely going to get worse because first you have to know how bad the problem is before you can solve it you know and that was my whole point on uh when I was talking about how the 1950s weren't weren't the moral paradise people think they are, they swept that shit under the rug. You know, there were priests raping boys, altar boys back then, but they just didn't talk about it. There was domestic violence and drug abuse back then. Now, it wasn't at the rates we're seeing today, right? We certainly have a fentanyl problem today and opioid, like everything today is worse. But those problems then, the solution was just don't talk about it. Today, we're talking about it and we're seeing how bad this monster is. All right. And it's making everybody think that Western civilizations fall apart and we're in complete moral decay. And it's like, nah, we're just honest for the first time in our lives, in our history, we're just honest about how bad shit is and people are losing their minds. And that's good because they got to lose their minds to be motivated to fix this. If we go back to the sweep it under the rug, don't talk about it techniques. 
you know, we're not going to actually solve this. People are going to continue to get raped and castrated and, and drug addicted and overdosed and beaten and, and whatever else. And, but it'll just, we just won't be talking about it. It'll be brushed under the rug. So out of sight, out of mind. I don't want that future. I'll take all the chaos of today and all the negativity it's going to bring to know that we're going to come out the other side, having solved this problem once and for all, you know, it ain't going to be easy, probably not going to be solved in my lifetime, but we're going to fight it and we're going to win. I like it. Can't, can't top that. That was a great monologue. (laughs) Well, then in that case, we should probably quit while we're ahead. So I'll just say thank you everybody again for listening. Um, you can definitely find us on Substack now. We, we using Substack to host the podcast. You can still listen to it on Spotify, whatever, whatever you're listening to it on now, you can keep listening to it there. Uh, but you can also find us on Substack. We're writing Substack articles now, so please check them out. Uh, let us know what you think. You can comment directly on uh, Substack about the articles and the podcast. You can also reach us on Twitter at Wi-Fi underscore pioneers. Feel free to uh, reach out to us, comment, DM, any questions you have. Uh, tell us what you think, you liked, disliked, or you want us to dive deeper into on the next episode. So with that, I will say thank you and have a good weekend. Remember, nobody's coming to save you. It is up to you to save yourselves.